Thank you for this moment that we could be with, um, with your Bible. Thank you that we could be with Scripture. Thank you for your love for us today. And uh, I, I thank you for the, the goodness of, um, of, of life in the church, uh, how you, you, you are with us and you have begun a, a, a journey with us and you are patient. So help us this morning as we think about uh, your word and help us as we think about um, Advent and perhaps uh, some familiar things for us, but uh, give us uh, a new understanding of the profound truth that you you sent your warrior, uh, your king, your shepherd king, who, uh, who did a marvelous work for us. And uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, what I want to do this morning is I want to uh, help you understand our series that we're, we're engaging in here. And what we're, what we're doing is we're looking at the concept of the announcement through Scripture. It's just a couple of Sundays in December, but we're going to look at the theme of when God begins to develop the message of salvation. Uh, the, the idea is that, uh, as Nathaniel mentioned uh, last Sunday, that when Genesis starts off in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's a good creation. And God is the king of this creation. And God intends for a kingdom to be established on this earth. And uh, so we're going to look this morning at the... Uh, the announcement that God makes uh, in Genesis 3.15 uh, about a conversation that he has with the serpent. And uh, so as we think about this, um, we're going to look at the gospel being unveiled for the first time as God speaks to, to the devil. Uh, and God declares uh, what's going to happen in the future. And our God, uh, as hard as it is to imagine, as we consider what we might see on the, the coverage of CNN this week and uh, the, the kind of stuff that's going on in the world, um, we, have, um, we have a God who has come into this world and has so identified with this fallen world that he has taken upon us this trouble, this sin, this evil, and he has taken upon himself um, a quest for redemption. And so we're going to look this morning at the idea of the announcement in Genesis 3.15. Um, the, the Greek word, it's euangelion, uh, and that word is the word that we get our word gospel from. And whenever that word was used, it was used of a special announcement, particularly of a military victory, uh, when a king was enthroned, uh, a birth of a child, uh, good news. And as the New Testament develops, this term uh, for good news uh, began to take shape with the entire 
uh, life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so in the preaching of the good news, you had a direct association of the, of the work of Jesus. And so we call this the gospel. And the gospel is an announcement. It is not instruction for moral improvement. It is an announcement that God has come and he has brought his deliverer who has conquered all that would keep us from God. And I want, I don't, we're doing this series uh, so that as you enter into uh, Christmas Day, uh, we want that to be a day when you realize more fully and more deeply the, the work that God has done over time, over history, so that it just doesn't surprise you suddenly it's here, that we're getting a deeper appreciation for what God has done in history. Jesus took great pride and pride and, and uh, uh, joy is probably a better word uh, in announcing the kingdom. When he would cast out demons, he would explain to people that the kingdom of God had arrived. When he would interact with people, he would explain to them that his presence was a deciding mark in history that the kingdom had arrived. And what we believe and what we understand the Bible to be teaching is that the kingdom has arrived in Jesus, but the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come. And so when we announce that the kingdom is here, it is here in its spiritual form. And its physical and concrete form is coming in the future. Let me think just for a moment with you about our cultural context in which we we find ourselves. Um, We find ourselves in a day of remarkable uh, possibilities for entertainment. Uh, It is is pretty profound. Um, I speak as one who had sabbatical this year, and uh, I was actually encouraged by one of our elders who was singing up here uh, to watch... uh, Downton Abbey, and uh, relax, you know. So uh, I actually engaged in some binge watching, um, and uh, I saw Downton Abbey, uh, in about three days, I saw two seasons. Okay, I got all caught up, so can't wait, January, you all, some of you tracking, season six. No one can believe that this story's still going on, but anyway, we live in an entertainment culture, Netflix, you know, all the streaming uh, entertainment but I have seen recently the ultimate commercial. Some of you who are, uh, at least I saw this on a, a college football game that was t- I taped, and uh, it's the ultimate commercial. It's one of the best commercials I've seen in years. And what it is, it's a family, it's a father and two sons, and they're intently watching something. And then the camera pans, and behind them is a firefighter who comes walking through the back of their house. And then it pans over, and there's this massive hole in the house, massive hole. It's all on fire. The edges of it are on fire. And then you come panning along, and there's a tree that's fallen completely into the house, and there's a firefighter with a chainsaw cutting it down. The family is still there looking straight toward you as the viewer, and the pan goes around. There's a mom and son eating popcorn, completely unaware of what's going on behind them. And then the pan keeps going, and there's a policeman in the window, radioing, like he's really concerned about what's going on, and then the pan keeps going. How many have seen this commercial? Okay, Bill, good job. So, and then it comes right around, and there's the flat screen TV they've been watching. 
And oh, the, the, uh, the voiceover, uh, big booming voice says, with four times the resolution, nothing is more captivating. <laughs> Ultra HD by Vizio. Is that awesome? And, and they're completely frozen, and they're completely disengaged from the fact that their house is burning down behind them. I can't think of a more descriptive uh, scene that describes what it is like for us today because we want to be captivated. We want to be captivated. Uh, I think of the, 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 the days of the Harry Potter books coming out and the frenzy of the kids who would stay with their parents all night long in front of the bookstore in order to be the first in line to go grab the book, right, the, the new edition. We think of this little obscure movie coming out later, December 18, something like that, the little, little cowboy adventure in space. You know, we just think of the people who are already in line. We want to be caught up in a story. We want to be caught up in a story. But there's something fatiguing about this. There's something uh, fatiguing about uh, entertainment because it works for a while. It has a power. Um, even in, uh, in HD quality, it has a, an amazing quality and a power. But it, it doesn't quite work, does it? And uh, someone was, uh, was tweeting uh, about um, when you're watching Netflix, I don't know if you know this, but if you're watching a, a series of shows in the same you know, TV show, then it will go to the next one, right? You have eight seconds to you know, change your mind, and of course, you go to the next one. Well, in that eight seconds, someone, someone said that, they said, that in the moment between Netflix episodes, you see your reflection in the black screen, and you wonder what you are doing with your life. <laughs> In that moment, you see yourself, you see. In that moment, between the episodes, um, perhaps God would have us this morning. Perhaps God would have us look at this remarkable text. Let's take a look at this. The Lord said to the serpent, verse 14, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. Strange talking snake. And God speaks to this serpent. A lot of mystery here. The Bible reveals it this way. And then verse 15. I will put enmity... Enmity is translated bitterness between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And suddenly out of, uh, out of the mind of God comes an individual and all we know is that he is called he. That's all we know. And there is now a great anticipation. Who is this He. Who is this he? And there is going to be a combat between Satan and this individual. And one will deal a mortal blow. One will be bruised on the head, uh, destroyed. One will perish. And the other will be inflicted with harm, a wound, be bruised on the heel. 
And God promises that what Satan desires to do here of creating an entire race of rebels, he's not going to be able to do. And God is going to separate what's called the seed of the woman from the rest of those that Satan has influenced. It's right here. Between you and the woman, between your offspring, do you see it there, and her offspring. And then ultimately, as this separation unfolds in the story of Scripture, it leads then to a final battle between God's champion and and Satan. So uh, this is uh, this is pretty pretty intense, isn't it? This is this is some real drama. This is the story of Scripture. This is the unfolding drama of of Advent. Somewhere in between the episodes of our life, the things that we've tried in our life, the successes, perhaps the job promotion, somewhere in between our, our moments in our life, maybe we're not watching something on Netflix and it's the eight seconds between the episodes where we see ourselves. The question comes to us today in our many, many choices in life, what story are we in? What story are we in? Are we in this story, or are we in another story of our own making? This is the story that will help us with great, deep meaning and purpose. We are living in an extraordinarily difficult and dark time in in world history. Um, The events that took place this week in San Bernardino, well, I grew up in Redlands. That's my hometown. Um, we're living in a time when, um, when these kinds of events are becoming pretty commonplace. And uh, there may be conversations you have with people about evil and about, about the situation in this world. And I hope that this story will remind you that it's not just a story in the sense of like a, a fairy tale. This is the story. This is the real story. This is the big one. And God promises to intervene and bring his champion. One of the most remarkable things about this text is that God's not required to do this. Um, we in the church may be very used to the idea that God speaks to us through Scripture. Um, we may be comfortable with it. We're pretty familiar with the idea. It's actually pretty stunning. Um, just like you can't know what another person's thinking unless they talk, <laughs> you can maybe trace their actions, but you, you, you can't, unless there's a revelation from that person, you don't have any real idea what's going on. Well, how much more true is it of God? Unless God reveals to us what he's thinking, we'll never know. And if he had commanded mankind to obey and to follow and to live in this extraordinary, beautiful paradise, and man turned and said, well, thank you, but we will live on our own. We will rebel. We will be 
the definers of our own reality. We will find our own way in life. Thank you. We do not want you. What would you do? Would you be merciful? Would, would you reveal your heart as merciful to people who have fallen into a radical estate of mercy? See, we have to pause for a moment and recognize that Genesis 3.15, for the story to begin to move in us, it is an extraordinary event that God is revealing his intention from all eternity to rescue a people for himself. And it comes from sheer mercy. It is stunning in its implications. God does not have to be merciful. If you can earn mercy, it's no longer mercy. There's something else. It's a barter. It's a deal. This is the announcement of mercy. The announcement of mercy. And there is to be an extraordinary amount of comfort for us because we need someone to be a champion over evil. Governments will do what they can. Individuals may do what they can. But this is a radical, death-promoting evil that has existed on this earth. At least we know in Genesis 3, that's when it begins its encounter with, with mankind. How long Satan had existed in, as this evil being, we don't know. But this is the voluntary self-disclosure of God. You have in your Bible the description of God willing to tell you in Scripture, in writing, so you can rely on it, that he is entering history. Redemption is God's work. It's the first idea from Genesis 3.15. Redemption is God's work. I will put. That's the first action of Genesis 3.15. The second idea of Genesis 3.15 is that spiritual enmity will characterize human history. Spiritual enmity, a bitterness... Uh, we will see, and I'll share a few thoughts on this about how the Bible unfolds, but it doesn't take long for spiritual bitterness, enmity, division to begin to manifest itself in the Bible. Genesis 4, Cain had some plotting related to his brother. Cain, the, 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 the first sin outside the garden is murder. I think we all need to come away this morning realizing that the Bible we read is not at all disconnected from our world. There was a bitterness in Cain's heart toward his brother Abel who offered a sacrifice that was according to what God said. Cain is likely he produced the work of his hands, maybe he produced... I don't know, some wheat, some carrots, celery, throw it on the altar, there it is. Abel gets a sheep or a goat, 
and obeys how he'd been instructed, likely from his parents. And Cain, in his heart, there is a bitterness toward his brother. There is a bitterness that Cain's offering would not be accepted, that there was a standard of blood that would only be received by God. This spiritual enmity begins right outside the gates of the garden. Spiritual enmity characterizes human history. Redemption, if you're writing these ideas down, redemption will be accomplished through the woman's seed. He shall bruise you on the head. There is a he who's coming who is going to be a victorious warrior. And redemption will be accomplished through the woman's seed. Another idea is that the promised seed will suffer. You will bruise him on the heel. And the last idea is that redemption will be universal. God intends for the gospel to go out to every nation and every tongue. This is depicted in God's promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, cannot be counted like the stars, cannot be counted like the sand of the sea. So when we talk about the one who's going to come from the woman, through him, redemption will come to all kinds of people around, around the world. So it's, it's a pretty exciting and it's a very hopeful uh, story. And as the book of Genesis unfolds, it's quite remarkable to watch how it is a story of some who do not believe and spurn the promises of God, and their, their lineage, their generation, their family tree just kind of sputters out. Others who believe with a persevering hope, their family tree continues. For instance, as God preserves mankind through Noah, it's the the son Shem. Through Shem, the family line continues on. It's very interesting to watch how even some of uh, Jacob's sons despised uh, one son, Joseph, threw him in a pit. We were thinking about how to kill him. And then they thought, well, let's make some money off him. And so they sold him to some traveling Bedouins. And they end up down, he ends up down in Egypt. The story continues of those that God is going to preserve in order to bring the Redeemer, in order to bring this champion. So when you think about even the book of Genesis, it unfolds with this remarkable explanation or illustration of Genesis 3.15. God is preserving a people for himself. It's a remarkable, remarkable text. A redeemer is coming. A redeemer is coming. There is a moment in Israel's history when it looks like Satan's desire to go after 
mankind and the promise of a redeemer, it seems almost possible that Satan is, pulls it off. There was a, a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. If you know anything of the Old Testament, uh, Ahab and Jezebel were a pretty evil couple. And uh, can you imagine what their daughter might have been like? Well, her name was Athaliah. And Athaliah was one who grew up and she was around. Uh, she was the daughter of a king. Uh, she was actually married to a king. And then finally, she's installed as queen. Uh, she's the only queen of Judah's history. And uh, she now is in control. This is all recorded in Kings and Chronicles. So Athaliah has this desire, wicked, evil desire, to wipe out the royal line. And so she systematically begins to kill her own grandsons. And the wife of a priest takes the youngest of Athaliah's grandsons, his name is Joash, and she hides him. And somewhere around seven years old, uh, he is brought out, and he is uh, brought into the temple, and he is coronated king. And Athaliah, who had thought she had destroyed everybody, she cries treason at the gate, at the gate of the temple, the, the doorway of the temple, and uh, and she's killed by the temple guards. It came down to one grandson. Again, the Bible uh, reflects uh, accurately the heart of evil. It reflects accurately the continued enmity and bitterness there is. Uh, in the world. There will be a God-oriented, mission-minded people who will be under this new and this final king that God will install. You see, the warrior who is born to Mary is powerful enough to now through his word alone, through his preached word alone, he's able to make a people for himself. And he will reflect and resemble the great and true God in human form. And he will utterly overcome all evil. It's vitally important that as Christians we think about Jesus born into this world as one who is doing battle with Satan. Um, there's not a few Christians that I meet where we, they acknowledge they almost too much that Satan is uh, completely loose, he's out of control, and at some point in the future, uh, Jesus will be king. Now, here's a mystery that we've all got to figure out. We believe that Jesus rose again from the dead and was ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 tells us that. On that very day, he was installed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
his ascension day is his coronation day. Now, on that very day, uh, somebody somewhere on the world probably committed murder. Uh, somebody, somebody, somewhere uh, did some evil act. And yet Christians go around and preach that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Wouldn't it make sense for people to come along and say, well, he's sort of, or he's kind of, or he's not quite. But the New Testament doesn't present him that way. The New Testament presents Jesus as having conquered all of our enemies. Now, this presents sort of a mystery, doesn't it? Because doesn't this world feel dark? Doesn't this world seem dark? Doesn't this world... Isn't it characterized by darkness? And the answer is yes. But Jesus tells us that he has overcome the world. We are then to look at his work in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension. We're to look at that, the complete package, and say, what is God announcing in this, in this whole package the whole package of his life. For instance, in Matthew 12, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Colossians 2.15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Galatians 1.4 says, He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our, of our God and Father. And Hebrews 2.14 says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So here's the deal. Do you believe that Jesus has conquered sin, death, hell, Satan? Do you believe that Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, in the son that Mary brought into this world? Is he a conquering king? The New Testament presents him in that way. Now, think about the New Testament Christians who had to go and face Rome. Rome and its crazy Caesars. Think about the apparent uncertainty of the darkness of this world as New Testament Christians moved out into the world to share the gospel, the good news. They went with absolute confidence that Jesus was king. And yes, evil still exists. Jesus is Lord, and Satan has some some freedom in this world, which is a mystery for us. Why does evil continue to exist but God's continued good purposes in Jesus are moving and marching on. Colossians 1, he rescued us, past tense. Colossians 1, 
13, he rescued us from the dominion and of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you are a believer in Jesus here today, I know you live in this world, but spiritually you have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. This has happened. This is real. This is the New Testament gospel hope for you. And we live this world, live in this world, facing difficulties, facing trials, facing death. But even in death, we are entering into the triumph of Jesus because he overcame death. And he promised us that we will never die. So as history unfolds, you have your Bible, and your Bible will guide you into understanding the purposes of history. The great, massive, giant purpose of history is the glory of God. Uh, this is something Vizio can't do with their flat screen. See, we all want to be captivated. We all want to be drawn in. What God knows about us is our desire for glory. We want to be surrounded by beauty, see beauty, be enveloped by beauty. We want to see God and his glory. This is why we have scripture. This is why we have the announcement of the gospel, to return our hearts to being captivated by what they should be captivated by. God has done in the past what he willed for his glory. God is doing in the present what he wills for his glory. And God will do in the future what he wills for his glory. And what is he going to do? He is going to redeem a people for himself. This is what's called redemptive history. It is a progress of events. History is packed with meaning, but it's very much like a Persian carpet where we're looking on the underside of the carpet where we can't quite make out the pattern. We can't quite see the top of the carpet where it all makes sense. But scripture is this marvelous, marvelous tool to give us insights. How do we wrap this all up? What does this mean for us today? And then I'm done. Really what's going on here is this. This is done for your comfort. When God looks in mercy and announces his announcement of mercy in Genesis 3.15, he's doing this for his people's comfort. It's a terrible thing to be cut off from the living God. It's a terrible thing to not have the assurance of his presence and of his, um, his abiding presence with you. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it has been summarized so beautifully. Question number one, answer number one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Notice how realistic it is. 
What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Outside of the garden, there was a radical sense of disconnect and a loss of belonging. The Heidelberg Catechism summarizes our comfort by saying that I belong. I belong to this Redeemer. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That's the announcement of mercy put into personal terms for us. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That you are not your own, but that you belong, both body and soul, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the announcement of mercy. This summarizes Advent in a beautiful, beautiful way. This is what people like Mary were understanding, that God had come and he was going to bring his warrior to do battle and to release people from the tyranny of the devil. Do you see, do you see the, the great reasons why we have to share with people the gospel. The fear, the uncertainty, the lack of belonging, the alienation that people experience outside of the garden. Blessed are your eyes for they see, and blessed are your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, these are the words of Jesus, truly I say to you, that the prophets long ago longed to hear the things that you hear and to see the things that you see. Let's pray. Our Father, we would thank you for these new eyes and ears, for the new comfort that comes. Father, I'm looking out at a world, and it's just, it's just beyond our belief what's happening in our day. And so, Father, I pray these will not be words that just represent pie in the sky, sort of Sunday stuff. I pray that what you have said and what you have done in Jesus will become deeply meaningful to us. Father, we are needing to be captured. We need to be captured by a story that is extraordinary, enthralling, and worthy of our lives. I thank you for my friends today, for the gospel the gospel of this marvelous, marvelous Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love to talk with any of you, pray with any of you after, after the service, interact with you on the text, or just, uh, just be with you. So I encourage you, encourage you to, 